this semester we're going through the book of Colossians, and um, there's a pat- what the book of Colossians is really about is really one of the ways in which Paul is addressing how the Christian life happens. How is it that the gospel changes us? What it means to live as a Christian? Receiving Jesus by faith, becoming Christian, is not a static enterprise. It's not, oh, now I got saved, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and then I kind of just do my stuff until I need to cash in on it. Um, and so Paul gives us the letter of Colossians. Uh, he addressed the church explaining how Christ is not just the person who saves us but changes us. And there's a unique pattern um, that goes along with everything Paul tells us. And it's this pattern of death and resurrection. Because it's Jesus' death that freed us from the guilt of sin, which is our legal standing before the law, our guilt. But it's also his death that freed us from the power of sin, namely sin's ability to control us and make us do the things we don't want to do. And in Jesus, we have resurrection life. Over with sin and the law no longer control us, no longer dominate us, no longer our identity, but now we have resurrection life in Jesus. He has given us new life. And that pattern of death and resurrection, there's a one-time event at the beginning of your faith in which you've tasted deeply of the grace of Jesus. His death has become your death. He's died for your sins and He's given you new life. And in some senses what Paul's doing all the time when he talks about living the Christian life, he's saying, Jesus bought you by His death and resurrection and there's a rhythm of death and resurrection that goes on in your life. That pattern of death and resurrection is still a pattern that's still at work in our life. And so in chapter 3, having established everything that we have in Jesus, he begins to point out, okay, to begin to live in Jesus, to actually be in his death and have died to the power of sin means that your life gets transformed, and it means that that pattern of death and resurrection still is at work in your life. And so he tells us, therefore, put to death. Here are the things that need to die, the things that are part of the old man who you no longer are, but are still kind of present in us, the sinful nature that's still present in us, though it is defeated. And at the same time, we're told to put on. We're told to put sin to death, and we're also told to put on. Another word that some theologians use is to vivify, to come to life in in the virtues and in the character of Jesus. And so death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection are the beginning of the Christian life, but also the pattern of the Christian life. And especially in this book of Colossians, another metaphor that Paul uses is taking off and putting on. He uses the language of garments, of clothes, to take off. Take off the things that fit your old self and put on the new things that fit your new self. And so we are on the put on part. We are on the vivify, on the live unto the new man part of the gospel. So this is Colossians. I'm actually going to read verse 9 through 17, but we're really going to work on verses 12 through 17. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then As God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we consider Your Word, um, these are the places where You call us uh, into transformed living. And I know I'm hesitant to go to those places and I'm hesitant to figure them out. And I just want to think that my Christian life is merely resting in You and not doing anything, dear God. But I pray now that we would all see that it's actually by your grace and in you, Jesus, um, that our lives, that really the way we live is transformed, dear God. Please teach us, change us. We need your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, as many of y'all know who've been at dinner at the woods, and if y'all haven't been to dinner in the woods, maybe this is an incentive to come. Maybe it's not an incentive. Um, we have two sets of twin girls. Four, year, four and a half years old and three years old. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's usually why people come to dinner in the woods. It's also why probably some people don't come. But um, I have permission to say this about the twin pregnancies that we both went through from Elizabeth. Um, she put on 60 plus pounds in both pregnancies. Uh, look at Elizabeth now. <laughs> Throw 60 pounds on that frame twice. Um, Needless to say, her clothes didn't fit. We weren't trying to pull off the like, celebrity wear thin clothes, show your tummy kind of thing when you're putting on 60 pounds. In both of those pregnancies, Elizabeth needed new clothes. Um, some of y'all might have experienced this. When I first entered into college, I entered in at 145 pounds. And I know I look like I've slimmed back down to 145 pounds, but it's actually not the case. Um, during my time in college, I tried to convince myself this was because I was in the weight room, but I think it didn't have much to do with that. I put on a comfortable 50-ish pounds. Um, by the end of college, my sport coats didn't fit. Uh, you know, the size 32 waist I was so proud of never really came back. Um, I had to get new clothes. Uh, y'all seen, you know, the subway commercials with Jared, you've seen the biggest loser things where people wear the clothing from their former life when they used to weigh a lot and it looks ridiculous on them. I say all that because that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying, your clothes from your former life don't look right on you anymore. They don't fit. Who you were apart from Jesus, the lifestyle and the heart of who you were apart from Jesus no longer fits you. And so tonight, we're going to look at the kind of clothes we're to wear as Christians. We're going to look at why you need new clothes, what they are, how you put them on, and then actually also the purpose for changing. Why you need new clothes, what they are, how you put them on, and also what's the purpose for changing. You see, the reason you, why you need new clothes is the same reason I need new clothes, the reason... Jared from Subway needed new clothes, and the same reason Elizabeth needed new clothes. The reason you need new clothes is because 
you are a new person in Jesus. If you've taken hold of Jesus by faith, trusted upon him for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus doesn't just save people. The language of the Bible is not just language of you got your sins forgiven. Jesus is making a new people. The language of the Bible is never just, it's too simplistic to think of it as I just got saved, I'm not going to hell. The work of redemption is actually making a new heavens and a new earth and making a new people to populate it. It's much broader. It's much more cosmic. It has much more implications for everything we do in all of life, in our work, in our play, in the way we use our time, in the way we study. Jesus and God are doing something much bigger than merely saving people. He's making new people. If you're in Jesus, you have a new identity. And your old clothes don't fit anymore. The reason we need new clothes is because we are new people in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. See, our identity is our image of ourselves that we look at to give ourselves significance and value. It's your image of yourself. You walked in here thinking about yourself a certain way, what it is that distinguishes you, what it is that makes you unique, that draws people to you, that makes people think something about you. We all have this. We all walked in with all these social anxieties about this image and this identity we wanted to project to the world. And, you know, this is way overly simplistic, but, I mean, all the typical stereotypes which certainly we're kind of all a blend of a lot of them. You know, uh, you know, you're a jock. You're the fun person. You're the funny person, the sarcastic person, the movie person, the YouTube person. Regrettably, we have some of those. You're the smart person. Um, you're the countercultural person. You're the fraternity sorority guy or girl. You're the studious person. You're the hipster person. You're the Apple person, um, which maybe is more noble than YouTube person, but that's another conversation. You're the theology person. We're all not simply one of those, but we all have an image or an identity we're trying to project to the world. And it's what we look at and what we dress according to to convince ourselves in the world of and to give us significance and value. And the Bible doesn't say that those differences don't exist. The Bible recognizes that they do exist, but they're not your identity anymore when you have trusted upon Christ. They're not your value and your significance. They're merely incidental to who you are in Christ. In Christ, your identity that you believe in and that you trust in and you dress for is this. It's the way Paul begins this passage. Put on then, and before he tells you what to put on, he stops. Put on then as... God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And these aren't just terms Paul happened to choose that are arbitrary. They're very specific biblical terms that are used all throughout the Bible for a very specific reason. There are three people in the Bible who are referred to as chosen, holy, and beloved. Paul very intentionally chosen, uh, chose those words that you are a Put on then, but wait, before you put on, you need to know. Put on as something chosen by God, holy and beloved. Those words describe three people in the Bible. First, we first see them describing the Old Testament people of God. It's used all throughout the Old Testament in all the prophets and all the wisdom literature and all of the history literature in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you, referring to Israel, are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Isaiah 41, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, talking about the nation, 
whom I have chosen. As it, uh, uh, Psalm 65, that you, beloved, may be delivered. That's just a sampling of the fact all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's chosen people, his holy people. Holy means set apart for a purpose. And his beloved, I mean, most prominently featured in the Song of Solomon. So that's the first people that are referred to as chosen, holy, beloved. But in the New Testament, as the story unfolds, there's someone else who's referred to as chosen, holy, and beloved, and that is Jesus. At the begin, at First Peter two four, Jesus is described as chosen and precious. Luke twenty three thirty five, he is mocked on the cross. People actually mock him for saying, "You're supposed to be the chosen one." Matthew three seventeen, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. All the gospels refer to Jesus as the holy one of God. Jesus is chosen. He's holy. He's beloved. But there's a third group of people referred to that way in scripture and it's the new testament church it's the people who are in christ first peter 1 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation god's own people one of the most common terms for the new testament church in the letters in the new testament is beloved beloved now what's paul's point when he chooses these words it's merely this. What is true of Jesus is true of you. What is true of Jesus is true of those who have taken hold of him by faith. God has chosen you. God has made you as holy as Jesus. And God loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. This is one of the most shocking aspects of the gospel. God loves his church, his chosen ones, his holy ones, with the same love that he loves perfect Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And the reason why he loves his church with that same love is because at the cross, Jesus became our sin and was punished for our sin. But not only that, he gave us his righteousness so that when God looks at you from the moment you had faith and forever, even while you're struggling, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus and he loves you the way he loves Jesus. And that can never be taken away. And the reason why that he chose you, the reason why he set you apart, and the reason why he loves you, and the reason why Jesus set his righteousness on you is for this reason alone, because he chose to. And that's the new identity. And this, I mean, if this reality really sunk into our hearts, then all our obsession with our sad little identity and image issues we have all around campus all the time would immediately evaporate. If that reality sat into our hearts, if we trusted upon Jesus, even if we're still trying to dress ourselves in a lifestyle determined by our old identity, those clothes don't fit you anymore. And you probably kind of feel that they don't fit. And it's because that's not who you are. <coughs> you're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. And that demands new clothes. So what do the new clothes look like? What are the new clothes? Paul, in this letter, gives us five virtues. We're going to do this quickly. This sounds like a lot tonight. Five virtues, and then kind of two applications of what those virtues practically look like, and kind of two summary statements. He gives us five virtues of the clothes that you're called to wear. And notice what they're not. They're not innovative. That's not the virtue, he proclaims. Aggressive, driven. 
right, the virtues worshipped by our culture. No. He gives us five virtues, and, and they all kind of overlap. And the first two is compassion and kindness. The first two are compassion and kindness. And what compassion is, is compassion is this. It's watching the homeless for the homeless video and signing up. That's actually what compassion is. It's not merely a feeling. It is, in a sense, is distress at other people's distress. But if it's only actually a feeling and is not accompanied by action, then all it is is sentimentality, which is a corrupted, twisted, kind of useless version of compassion. Compassion is distress and at other people's distress and then moving towards them. It's moving towards them, even if their situation is self-created. If it's their fault. Most of those people, a lot of them, it's probably their fault. Kindness goes along with compassion. It is actively seeking the well-being of others. If compassion is going into people's distress with them, kindness is then beginning to serve them and seek their well-being and being good. And they go hand in hand in that regard. Humility and meekness. Humility is this. It's no longer believing that your interest and your status are more important than anybody else's. It's no longer believing that your interest and your status are any, import, any more, more important than others. And what meekness is, meekness is actually saying others' interests and status are more important than yours. It's actually giving up your interest and your status for the sake of others. And these things, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness, we can all do for a little while. We can all do it this weekend for a little while. But it's the fifth virtue that in some ways kind of certifies or validates all the others are real. Patience. We can all do it for a little while. Patience is doing it over the long haul. Over and over. Entering into people's pain. Seeking their well-being. Not considering your own interest and your own status, but instead considering their interests and their status above yours. It's patience that really marks whether or not your compassion, your kindness, your humility, your meekness is genuine. Because patience is that over the long haul. So two applications. Those are the five virtues. Paul gives us some application of what they begin to look like. They look like bearing with one another. And if someone has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Bearing means sticking it out in the relationship with someone who really has done a real painful wrong to you. It is working out and working within that relationship and forgiving each other is actually then, inside that relationship, relinquishing your right to demand justice. See, Paul's recognizing real pain takes place in our relationships, that you really are hurt. And there's hurt in this room that you think you're the only kind of person that's been hurt this way and no one understands how deep it is. And I know I don't understand how deep it is. And Paul's calling us to forgive, to bear with people and to forgive. And forgiveness is hard. It's not easy. If it ever feels easy, it's not forgiveness. It's not letting time wash over it. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not just, hey, I'm not going to let it bother me. When someone hurts somebody, a cost is incurred. There's a cost there. And for the situation to be righted, that cost has to be paid for. The way to illustrate it is when we got here, 
uh, a year after we got here, our across-the-street neighbor has this bridge club meeting with all these 90-year-old women, and it's just a, it's an automobile nightmare. And um, <laughs> after the bridge club meeting, uh, one Thursday, they backed out of their driveway and backed over our mailbox. Now, one of two things could have happened. I could have asked her to pay for it. I could have not asked her to pay for it. If I didn't ask her to pay for it, would it still cost somebody something? Absolutely. Either she was going to pay $30, and if she didn't, I was going to have to pay $30. Forgiving, forgiving her looked like costs to me. Bearing and forgiving, it's not just letting time wash over. Bearing and forgiving is, a, is actually absorbing the pain and absorbing the cost and relinquishing your right to demand justice. And we can all think of people that we've been that have sinned against us, that you have a real, legitimate, in the law of God complaint against. And Jesus calls us to forgive. <coughs> and if that sounds overwhelming and maybe maybe even impossible, then that means you're stumbling onto what forgiveness really is. And that's why Paul grounds it in this reminder. Forgive just as God has forgiven you. There's no grievance that you have about any uh, that you have against anyone even in the worst situations that are no are represented in this room that you think no one else could completely understand. Any grievance you have against anyone is nowhere close to even being in the ballpark of any grievance God has against us. And yet, He has forgiven us. And it's in understanding His forgiveness for us that we begin to have the capacity to relinquish our right to demand justice from people and instead, out of mercy, forgive whoever it is, parents, roommates, friends, whoever it is, the relationships you're running away from. So these are the applications or bearing and forgiving. That's kind of two of many pictures it could look like to begin to put on these virtues. And there's two summary statements, and he concludes that it's love. We must put on love, and it, love is a thing that binds all of these things together. You see, each of these virtues alone can actually be dangerous. Compassion, let's take the context of the homeless again, Compassion might not necessarily always be helpful it's, if it's unguided compassion, if it's not guided by prudence, by kindness, by a desire to love people towards Christ. I don't know if it's always right to give them cash when it's clear what they're going to do with it, if they're going to buy weed with it at the Greyhound station. I don't know. And so there's a sense of love and prudence that maybe means you go to, you know, um, what's it called, Publix and get a gift card. Compassion by itself is kind of held in tension. All of these are held together overall by the virtue of love. And that's the fundamental heart attitude that holds everything together. And what love is, a simple definition is, being for the world what Christ has been for you. Sometimes it's soft and sometimes it's hard. It's, but it's a concerted, constant commitment to others for the sake of Christ. Their well-being it's not always necessarily getting what they want. That's not necessarily what love is. Love is not necessarily being concerned with them being happy. It's not what love always is. Love is not not confrontation. Sometimes love is very hard. But first and foremost, love desires that they know the riches of Jesus and know those riches deeply. And you see, the only way we can begin to put on these kind of virtues is if other things in us die. Self-concern, 
self-love. The fact that every morning we wake up and our fundamental orienting idea is, how can I make this day for me comfortable? That's got to begin to die. These things are bound up in love. The second kind of summary statement is he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. What's he saying? He's not saying, this is what he's not saying, he's not saying, let Jesus give you some kind of internal, emotional, psychological comfort. It's not what Paul is saying right here. What he's saying is that the peace that Jesus has worked in reconciling us to God is the thing that governs our relationships out here. The peace of Christ ruling among you means that the peace of Christ is what guides and directs and governs the way we relate to each other. People always talk about having Christ at the center of their relationship or a Christ-centered relationship. And I usually, when people say that kind of language, I always want to know what they mean. To me, that sounds ambiguous. I don't, I'm not sure what it means to have Christ at the center of your relationship. But I think Paul is actually beginning to explain to us what it means. Christ-centered means Christ-acting. Christ-centered relationship means that you are Christ-acting in your relationship toward one another. And Christ-acting towards one another has to be preceded by Christ-trusting. Let the peace of God, the peace of Jesus, the peace that Jesus has purchased for you be the model and the power that drives your love in your relationships. Christ-centered means Christ-acting, and Christ-acting can't happen without Christ trusting, trusting upon Christ. Three real brief points about these, really quick. Uh, Again, these virtues. The first one is this. They're not optional. These are not some things that like, oh, those aren't my Christian things. You know, I'm glad we have some compassionate people or some humble people. They're not mine. Um, You know, this is for the people of God, for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not optional. Secondly, these things have concrete, tangible expression in your life. They are things that work themselves out into life. There's no such thing as being compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing, and forgiving, and not doing anything. Crying at the movie Hotel Rwanda and not doing anything is not compassion. It's not compassion. It doesn't mean, oh my gosh, you have such a tender heart. Crying and not doing anything might be meaner than not crying and not doing anything. It's just sentimentality. And sentimentality is just the corrupted, twisted version of what compassion was supposed to be. And it means nothing. You can still cry in Hotel Rwanda. That's fine. But move on to your relationships and compassion. These things are not optional. They have concrete expression, expression in your life. But lastly, they come from the heart. We are a generation, believer, unbeliever, regardless of what you are, that's very keen on sniffing out posers, right? We're reacting against our parents' church in some ways because we feel like so much of it's a production. It feels inauthentic. Authenticity is the key for this generation. You can put these things on for a while, but these virtues and their true Christian expression <coughs> begin in the heart. They're not a lifestyle. They're actually your life. They're not merely what you do. They are, are what you are. So the question then is, how do we do it? Because that's a tall order. How do, we be, how do we not just kind of act compassionate sometimes when it's convenient on a weekend and cheap? How do we be compassionate? How do we be humble? How do we be meek? How do those not become some things that we do sometimes but become us? 
And Paul gives us clarity. He says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's he saying? And this is the key to putting on the Christian virtues. This is the key. This is the key difference between box-checking off Christianity and true Christ-likeness, being transformed by the love of Christ. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, preach the gospel to each other over and over. He's not saying, let the, peace, uh, let the word of God dwell in you as an individual richly. He's saying, together, let the word of God dwell in y'all richly. Second person plural. Most of the time when you read Paul and it says you, it's a plural. You need to know that. We, we need a y'all in uh, most of the translations. I guess we have northerners translating, but this is a y'all. This is not a you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Not in you in your quiet time. Read your Bible when you're, when you're alone. That's fine. That's not what Paul's talking about right here. The story of Jesus. We're to recount it to each other. The good news about Jesus, the story of love, the story of redemption, the story of a father loving a wayward son, the story of a husband buying back his whore of a wife. These are images the Bible uses for God's love. The story of a wayward sheep recovered by a shepherd. The the story of a rebellious and self-centered people hating their good and kind God and how in spite of that, he is relentless in loving them. We have to tell that to each other. He's talking about the church. It's an us process. It's not something you do by yourself in the morning. He's talking about the church. He's talking about preaching the word and sitting under the preaching together and applying the word together in conversations and singing the word in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We as a church are to rehearse and to remember and to relive and even in communion to retaste the good news of Jesus and his, the reality that he died for the sins of his people. This is the key. This is the how. This is the wherewithal with which, from which we get the power to live like Christ. Let me give you an illustration for you. At the end of most days... Um, if the kids, when the kids eventually go to sleep. Um, Elizabeth and I crash on the couch and talk about our day. And um, she's more of a talker than I am at the end of the day. And uh, she recounts to me what her day was. And so she tells me what she did all day, what it was like after I left. It's really sweet. The babies still cry when I leave. And it's like sad and awesome at the same time. I mean, my kids cry that I leave. That's amazing. That's actually the second best part of my day because they are crying, which I'm sad about. The best part is when I get home and they're actually still excited and like run up to me and like grab my knees and I can't walk in. But when we get home at the end of the day, she tells me about what it was like after I left and how it was hard and how she had to come for Britain and Catherine. She talks about what she made for them for lunch and if lunch went well or if it went messy. She talks about their trip to the zoo. Um, she talks about, she tells me the laundry that she got to get to that day, the rooms that she got to clean that day, the neighbor that she got to spend time with that day, the child that maybe she got special one-on-one time with that day and what they talked about. Um, 
just some sweet conversations with the girls. Today, Catherine, Catherine's struggling, man. Um, poor, poor Catherine is just really struggling. And today, she was really honest. kind of a beautiful moment. She told Elizabeth, I don't want to obey you. She's kind of torn up about it. And then, uh, it was kind of beautiful. She recognized who she was. Um, and Elizabeth loved on her. And Elizabeth, one of the things we talked about is about how Jesus has their names uh, written on his hands. To which Catherine says, so Jesus writes on his hands? <laughs> but uh, Elizabeth proceeded to tell Catherine that Jesus has written his name on your hands. He knows your heart. He's called you to himself. And Catherine said to Elizabeth, this is amazing. It's still kind of blowing my mind. She told me beforehand. She said, tell God to not forget me. <laughs> and man, there's no sweeter comfort than to tell your child that God will never forget you. You know? When Elizabeth tells me these stories at the end of the day about all the things she did, those sweet conversations, but especially all the things she did and especially the hard things she did, she doesn't actually know what I'm hearing. Because what I'm hearing when I hear those stories over and over again is I'm hearing from her, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I start to want to be the kind of husband that deserves that love. Because I'm not, and she loves me anyway. And it's her love that's making me want to be the kind of husband I should be. Her love wasn't contingent, it, did, it wasn't required for me to change for her to love me, rather... It's actually her love given to me first that changes me. That's what Paul's talking about here. So how do we put on the clothes of Christ? How can the peace of Christ rule your relationships? How can the word of Christ change your relationships if you're not hearing it, if you're not seeing it, if you're not applying it, if you're not working out, if it's not dwelling richly within us as a group, what I hope RUF can be, this is not the church, but this is a smaller fellowship group on campus, a group of Christians. What I hope it can be is a place where some of that happens, where you enter into relationships in this group as a community, and the word of Christ dwells rich within us, and we tell each other about the love of Jesus. If we do it on our own, then all you're going to do is make this private little Christian experience you have on your own, which is, not, which is something in complete opposition to what Paul talks about. He almost always talks about the Christian experience being corporate together. When we run away from the church and have our Sunday mornings by ourselves in our room, Paul doesn't recognize that in almost in any sense at all as being anything distinctly Christian. Being Christian is being a people of God together, working out our sanctification together letting the word of Christ dwell among us richly to comfort each other together in Christ to encourage each other and it's in the constant taste of that gospel both given to each other in word but also demonstrated in deed it's that constant reminder of it that we slowly from the inside out begin to put off the old ways and to begin to put on the new ones, the new clothes that fit. And it's actually, in fact, when we're reminded and we see that Jesus actually puts on both lists in this longer passage. That Jesus actually put on 
our sexual immorality. Jesus put on our impurity. Jesus put on our perverted passions. He put on our evil desires, our malice, our gossip, our our slander, our rage, our lies. Jesus put those on for us. And on account of those things, according to Paul, the wrath of God is coming. Those things demand God's wrath. And it was coming for us, but Jesus put on our sexual immorality, and the wrath of God came on him. And it came on him because he was always wearing the second list of virtues. It came on him because he had compassion for us. Because he set aside his interests and set our interests above his it's because he was kind to us. It's because he was patient with us. It's because he was forgiving and forbearing with us. Christ wore all of these things on both sides of this passage, and it was our sin that prompted his death, and it was his compassion and his humility that drove him there. And when we get that, we'll start to hate sin in our life. That that was the reason for his death, and we'll love these virtues because these are the virtues that made him want to go there. And we'll give thanks. There's a threefold reminder of thanksgiving in this passage in verse 15, 16, and 17. always ends, you know, let the peace of Christ dwell in, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you're indeed called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom songs, psalms, and, uh, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. When the reality of the gospel sets into our heart, kind of the first and the most consistent thing that happens in our life is we give thanks. Over and over again, someone who's been saved by grace, the first and most consistent thing that begins to happen in your life is you give thanks. That's how we put on these clothes. I just want to close briefly with the purpose of changing. Paul concludes with this verse, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to do things in the name of the Lord Jesus? See, he doesn't say, he doesn't actually care so much what you do, but that in anything that you do, he cares about why you do it and how you do it. Namely, who you do it for. See, the purpose of our old identity, all the social anxieties, all the things we want people to believe about us, all the things that we think give us significance and value, the purpose of that identity that we are crafting, that image that we sometimes too kind of tightly believe in, the purpose of that was our own glory. We wanted people to think of us a certain way. We wanted people to know our name, to have this buy into this image or this identity that we were crafting. We wanted to make our name known. The purpose of your new identity is to make the glory of Christ known. That's what it means to do it in Christ's name. The, the words in verse 12 actually kind of it bookends the passage. Put on then as God chosen one, holy and beloved. Chosen does not merely mean he selected you. Holy does not mean merely that you were set apart. When those words are used in the Bible, you are chosen for a purpose. You are set apart to fulfill a mission, chosen and set apart to be a priesthood, a city on a hill that the whole world can see, a light to the world. Those are different ways of saying 
You were chosen, you were set apart to make God known to the world. Living as a Christian in your Christian identity is not this inward, primarily this inward exercise of developing Christian virtues. It's inward for the purpose of being outward. For the purpose of being the compassion of Jesus. For being the humility of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. For being the forgiveness of Jesus to one another and for the world. Thus displaying Christ instead of displaying ourselves. Doing it in His name for His glory instead of in our name for our glory. Do whatever you do for His glory. That's not a sentimental like pointing to the heavens. I don't know what that means. I don't know why people do that. I don't think that means that whatever you did right before that meant you did it for Jesus. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. That's not what it means to do something in Jesus' name. Doing it in Jesus' name is doing it in such a way that when people see you do it, they see Christ. And that's only possible when you first trust on the grace and love of Jesus. Let's pray. (coughs)